1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. During each program, Tim will take you behind the scenes and share stories and memories from his long career in the world of IndyCar competition. With seven championship rings to his credit, Tim not only understands auto racing history, He has lived it. And now, for the most famous words in racing history, Drivers, start your engines! And we
0: thank you as always for that wonderful introduction. And welcome to this episode of Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History. My name is Ziemba. I'm always pleased and honored to be here with Tim as he goes back and peels away some layers of IndyCar and racing history to take us inside the pits, inside the garages, and telling us what really went on back then. So in this episode, Tim's going to have a special remembrance to a person that was very special to him, a guy that was called an outlaw. He was called a hippie, but most importantly, he was called a racer, and that would be Jan Opperman. Tim, welcome.
2: How are you today? Thanks, Joe. I'm doing well, Joe. It's great to be here.
0: And Tim, you you enjoyed a very close relationship with, with Jan Opperman. And of course, we'll discuss his career at length in this episode. But first, how did he get involved in racing and what was his family background?
2: Uh, Jan was born in uh, Westwood Village uh, in the L.A. area in 1939. And uh, he grew up in Bonner's Ferry. Uh, His family moved up uh, into the mountains uh, in Idaho, and he also lived in Washington before uh, settling in the Bay Area around San Francisco. He uh, he went to school in Hayward, California, and um, he had a younger brother Jay. uh, His mom, Dad, Jim and June, but they were called Mops and Grizz. They were. Uh, Very, very close knit family. Uh, Jay and Jan were excellent athletes, football players. Uh, Jan did some boxing, but uh, he was attracted to speed at a very young age. And Jan started racing, uh, he called them motorcycles. He started racing motorcycles when he was 16 years old. And uh, he was, I had the pleasure one night of having dinner with Joe Leonard. Uh, Joe Leonard was a three time AMA motorcycle national champion. Uh, he was all he was from San Jose, which was the Bay Area also obviously south of the Bay Area in California. but uh, Joe told me that uh, Jan was a pretty darn good r- motorcycle racer and they had some they had some battles. so he was a good motorcycle racer and um, Jan started racing midgets uh, up and down the coast of California in the mid 60s uh, after his motorcycle career. And uh, he had mixed success in the midgets. Uh, he drove some good cars and some bad cars, but uh, that's where he started racing, was in the, in the Bay Area. He was, a, he was a really good motorcycle racer, a flat track racer. He raced on miles. He raced TT racing. He raced with Joe Leonard and Dick Dorstein, some of the famous AMA riders of all time. And Joe Leonard, he spoke highly of Jan in his motorcycle uh, career, so he was good at he Was good at bikes, and he got into midgets, and uh, and California there around the Bay Area, and he raced up and down the coast. That's how he started racing.
0: Quite the background motorcycle. I want to make sure I pronounce that correctly, Tim.
2: Well, that's what he called him.
0: <laughs> it's just not Hoosier talk,
2: is it? Uh, that's Hoosier. You know me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how did you meet Jan? Were you a fan of his or a colleague uh, before you met him?
2: Well, of course, I'd seen him race. Uh, he, you never knew where he was going to show up. Whether it was a, when they were paying some good purses, Jim, he would, pay, he, Danville, Illinois, Granite City, Illinois. Uh, he raced all over the Midwest. He raced coast to coast. So um, he started to gain quite a reputation. And, uh, but he was an outlaw. And, uh, you know, I was from Indiana and, uh, when he came to run USAC, I, I saw him run before he ran USAC, but when he came to my part of the country, and I grew up in Indianapolis, when he started racing USAC and around there, is when I started to cross paths with him, so to speak. And I spoke to him a couple of times, but the um, way I really met him was uh, in 1974, I got in my I had a Volkswagen bus and I saved a little money and I decided I was going to go to Pennsylvania. Uh, pennsylvania is a hot bit of sprint car racing they got a bunch of tracks over there uh, and they race quite a bit technologically speaking i mean back in the day in the, in the early 70s and late 60s uh, they started running wings on sprint cars they ran unlimited uh, cubic inch displacement in the engines and they started running drag tires uh, they take tires off a drag race car they had real soft rubber, and they had a two ply sidewall, which is a very flexible sidewall. And this is a, this is a pretty out on the, out of the envelope deal to. And they started racing, so anyway, I decided I was having a hard time getting anybody to hire me to work on an indie car. I had kind of a, I had long hair and, and uh, listened to Jimi Hendrix, and, and I was. Uh, I didn't fit in with a corporate type Indy car racing. So I decided to go to Pennsylvania and, uh, I drove over and I, uh, got to Williams Grove, Pennsylvania, which is a real famous racetrack. Uh, Williams Grove, uh, was built in the thirties. Um, and it's got a historic background. Well, anyway, USAC sprints were going to race there. And I drove over there in my Volkswagen bus and parked on the hillside. I got there on a Friday night late and slept overnight. And I got up the next day and I went in to the track, got myself a pit pass and went in and Jan's car showed up, a uh, pickup truck towing his race car. And I had a guy and his wife, Ray, Royal, Ray and Joyce Royal were towing Jan's race car. And uh, it was Fred Aiden's car, but they didn't have any help. So I helped them unload the car and went and got fuel for him and uh, Jan showed up. He'd been qualifying in IndyCar at Pocono that day. And I helped him that night and it started raining and it rained the main event out. So they didn't race, run the big race that night. And after the race, Ray, uh, Royal said to Jan, he goes, I want you to thank this kid. He helped us all night long. You know, when we got here, we didn't have any help and he's been with us, helping us. And Jan looked at me and he said, who are you? He says, everywhere I go, I see you. He said, uh. And it was raining, and like I said, I had long hair and a beard. And he goes, "You look like some kind of drowned wet cat." He goes, "I'm gonna take you home and pick your brain and see where you're coming from." And that's how I met him. And uh, you know, just I think making the effort to go to Pennsylvania, uh, it worked out for me. I got a break that way. But he, he was uh, right away that him and I kind of connected, and uh, it. It carried on from there.
0: Did Jan have a similar appearance, to him?
2: <laughs> well, Jan wasn't your corporate type guy, for sure. Jan was a country guy. He, he lived in the mountains. Uh, you know, he had, uh, for race car drivers back in the day, trying to get uh, rides at Indianapolis and everything, everyone kind of towed the mark and walked the line as far as appearance and everything. But Jan was 180 degrees the other way. Uh, he wore fringe jeans uh yeah i mean as he wore jeans that, you know the bottom was fringed bell bottoms and indian moccasins and he had button chop sideburns and pretty long hair and he had a pair of the wildest eyes i've ever seen he had big blue eyes he was uh he was and he his brother jay jan's younger brother jay he he was killed in a sprint car at knoxville iowa in 1970 jan wore jay's hat jay had a had a cowboy hat that Jan Jan always wore and Jay gave him a a bear tooth because they grew up in the mountains. I guess they shot a bear and, and they Jay gave him the tooth from the bear and told him and Jan wore it around his neck on a leather necklace. And uh, he said, Jay gave him that bear tooth and told him when he drove race cars to run like a bear. So he was a different appearing guy, but uh, I mean, he, I felt, I felt like I fit in with the crowd over there. I really did.
0: So, uh, I'm going to ask you a, a, a two handed question here. Well, I've seen some old photos of you, and this is slightly before color photography came into vogue, but you had a cowboy hat on. That's my first question. Was that a Jan influence? And secondly, what influence did he have on your racing career?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, I wore overalls and the country type guy and had long hair and everything. But yeah, I, but sprint car racing, to me, Jan had influenced me in that respect, but sprint car racing, the Cowboys, Waylon Jennings, and that kind of music and everything, uh, yeah, it, it it just seemed to fit hand in hand. And, you know, wearing a Cowboy hat made me feel like an outlaw, so that's why I did it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just – meeting him and going up and down the highway and everything, It, it he really – uh, just to be to be accepted by him uh, and to be a friend. He invited me to he invited me to go racing with him. He told me to come along, and I didn't know that much at that time at all. And he he taught me a lot. And the people that worked for him worked on his cars taught me a lot. And they also became lifelong friends. But uh, yeah, he he was a huge influence on me. Uh, I mean, when you're associated with a guy like him, wherever you go, there was crowds around him. After the races, I mean, sometimes there'd be a couple hundred people around his car, and he would stay until the last person left. I mean, kids were wanting autographs and people, guys wanting to shake his hand. Um, He he was a class act all the way through. And, uh, yeah, he had a lot of influence on me, and he he helped me. And, I mean, I, I met people. Wherever he traveled around the country, I mean, if he was racing in Florida, if he was racing in Iowa and Knoxville or Manzanita, there was always a crowd of people, his friends, and you were always taken care of. I always had a, ended up having a place to stay. And people, you know, he got together and, and fed you and stuff. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a group of guys that to this day I still, and that was 50 years ago. Um, like for instance, Rod Albright, I met him at Knoxville in 1974. And, uh, to this day, I still see him, Phil Lash from Beavertown, Pennsylvania. I met all those guys many, many years ago because of Jan. And, uh, that's what kind of influence he had. I mean, it's hard to put in words, but that guy, there was something special about him, not just his driving, but, um, there was a, a community of people around him that, I'll never ever forget.
0: Sounds like he was good with the fans and with little kids. Any stories you might remember about how he was uh, dealing with fans or, or little kids in particular?
2: Uh, like kids would come up to him and say, "Hey, I want to be like you. I want to race, and I've got a go kart, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be like you, and I'm gonna drive race cars." and you know, like, guys hear that all the time. And, See a kid come up and talk to him. A couple weeks later, a kid walks up to him after the races, and before the kid can say anything to Jan, Jan says, You get that go-kart going yet? And I say, Hey, you know, he's he really is talking to he he pays attention. He's uh he cares about people. And that's uh, it's it's hard to put in words about him. He he was uh he really cared about people and he was a Christian. He started as a hippie and he admitted he smoked dope and everything like that. But, um, he became an ordained minister and, uh, he, he was a very, he wasn't your corporate type regular trying to buy his way into the speedway type guy. He was sincere about what he did, but, uh, he, he just did. He did a lot for me. He really did.
0: I uh, was doing some research for this episode, Tim, and I came across an old article, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but it said something about he once drove a car uh, using an airplane engine. Any truth to that?
2: He sure, he sure did. Uh, you know, he was racing in California, racing uh, BCRA midgets, uh, Bay Area midgets, out in, on the coast, and uh, he wanted to race sprint cars, and there was a, a Forgive my mispronunciation. There was a guy in Northern California had a, uh, I think his name was Hank Hannestad. had a uh, had a sprint car that had a Ranger airplane engine in it. And Jan got in that thing, and uh, he won a race in it. And uh, yeah, he he would drive anything. I mean, he 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 wanted to race really bad. And uh, you know, he dropped out for a while. He he disappeared. Uh, and Billy Vukovic will tell you, he's told me many times, he said that, you know, he raced midgets against Jan in the Bay area and, you know, Jan had his ups and downs. He had good, he drove good cars and bad cars and uh, he, he could be pretty wild. He stood on the gas hard and he wasn't real polished yet, but all of a sudden he disappeared. And Vukovic said that he, uh, he read the race paper, the speed, speed sport news, which was the, they call the racers Bible. It's got all the race results every week from all over the country. And Bukovich said Jan just disappeared one day and then he said a few months later he read he was racing over in Iowa and Nebraska and Kansas. So you know he, he was uh he was he was something else.
0: So where did the term original outlaw come from when someone would describe Jan?
2: Well, he looked like one to start with. I mean, he looked like a gunfighter. I mean, he, he did. He looked like a gunfighter. I mean, he, he was an athlete. He was, uh, I mean, he was, built. he, he looked like a boxer and he had those piercing eyes and he wore that cowboy hat and he had those mutton chop sideburns wore Indian moccasins. He was, uh, he was an outlaw and Jan's philosophy was, he tried USAC in 1971, early in uh, the season, um, after he went back to the Midwest and drove around Kansas. Like I said earlier, he raced IMCA sprints in the Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, uh, Iowa, and that area. And uh, in 1971, he he ran a couple USAC races. Didn't work out for him. He, he made the races. He qualified and ran about 10th, but he went back on the, He went back to Pennsylvania, and it didn't matter. They'd run weekend in Pennsylvania, tow over and race in Granite City, Illinois, Danville, Illinois. He raced everywhere, uh, wherever they paid money. He was going to race, and uh, and that's he was an outlaw, and he didn't belong to. I mean, people talk about racing, and they talk about. I called it alphabet soup, the different racing organizations: USAC, United States Auto Club. CRA, California Racing Association, uh, IMC, International Motor Contest Association. All these different organizations have – I call them alphabet soup. They had had names. Well, Jan didn't kowtow to that. He wanted to race where and when he wanted whoever paid the most money, and that's why they called him an outlaw.
0: Ah. He certainly sounds like he paid his dues. What was his – his road to stardom like did he hit it big time immediately or did he have to spend a lot of years working the back roads tim to where
2: he got well yeah i mean he like i said he came back to the midwest in in uh, late 67 early 68 and got hooked up with bob trossel out of des moines iowa and uh he raced uh in in iowa and kansas in that area and he got a reputation i mean in he went fast for Trossel. And then in 1969, Bill Smith, who owns Speedway Motors, uh, which is still in business, <laughs> one of the biggest parts houses in the country, uh, still there. And it had famous 4X Sprint car, and Jan drove for him in 1969 and 70. But in early 1970, uh, Jack Gunn was a promoter uh, at Sealand's Grove and Williams Grove Speedways in Pennsylvania, which are a hotbed it's like i said earlier i mean these tracks running on friday and saturday nights and they got huge crowds they race for big money and they race a lot in pennsylvania and he saw jan run at knoxville jack gunn did and he uh early in 1970 he invited jan to come over he got him a ride uh and uh guy's name was harold hank he was an old pennsylvania car owner had a nice edmund sprint car and he talked Harold Hank and uh, uh, Jan drive his car at the opening day at Seelands Grove and Williams Grove Speedways. The funny story about that is Harold Hank was a conservative old Pennsylvanian. And Jan, like I said earlier, his appearance could be, uh, he, he was out on the limb. And anyway, a friend of mine one time told me a story about Jan first going to Pennsylvania to race. And he walked into Harold Hank's shop. Uh, Jack Gunn flew him from Nebraska to Pennsylvania to race uh, this week opening weekend at, at Sealands Grove and Williams Grove. They walk in, uh, Harold Hank's shop and Jan had on, I guess he was wearing a cape and he had on, you know, his friend's jeans and Indian moccasins and his hat and everything. And, and I guess Earl Hank got a hold of Jack Gunn, pulled him aside and says, get that guy out of my shop, you know? And he says, he's driving your car. He says, I flew him all the way over here to drive for you. And he says, he'll do you a good job. Give him a chance. Well, it's it's tough to go into Pennsylvania and run against these guys. I mean, these were Mitch Smith and Bobby Adamson and Bobby Allen. These guys are some of the, the baddest ass sprint car racers in the country. And they're running wings and stuff. That, you know, they didn't do that back in the Midwest for Jam is from. It's a completely different and running tracks he'd never seen before. Well, he went out the first night at Sealand's Grove, never seen the track, and ran second to Mitch Smith, which was unbelievable. And then the next afternoon, he went to Williams Grove, one of the most famous dirt tracks in the country, and won the first time he ever raced there. And that opened up Jan's eyes because uh, – he could he could race a lot over there, and he could make a living and feed his family. So th- that's how he ended up going over there. But uh, you know that Pennsylvania sprint car racing became a big part of his lore, so to speak.
0: And why was the year nineteen seventy two so special for Jan Opperman?
2: Well, in seventy one, uh, Jan had a had a really good year. <laughs> A really good year. He started out, like I said, tried to run USAC a little bit. Didn't work out. He ran in the top 10. But he said, these guys don't race enough. And he said they weren't very nice to him. You know, he was a hippie and everything. And they're pretty clean cut bunch wanting to run the speedway. But anyway, he left USAC. He ended up going to drive for a guy named John Singer, who's in the Sprint Car Hall of Fame. I work for John. He's one of the best race car mechanics of all time. They won the Knoxville Nationals, and I think they won, I don't know, 20 races that year. But they went out of business after uh, Knoxville, which Knoxville is the biggest sprint car race of the year. Uh, And in fact, as we speak right now, uh, they're having the Knoxville Nationals this weekend. So anyway, uh, Jan won Knoxville, but this team went broke. Well, Jan flew out and and drove for the Gibson family at Phoenix at the Manzanita Speedway at the Western States Championship. And both Knoxville and Manzanita, they're the two biggest sprint car outlaw races in the country at, at that time, at that time. And I mean, you could have upwards of 150 race cars at these places. I mean, just to make the top 20 and qualify for the feature was astronomical. Well, Jan wins Knoxville and he goes out and gets in the Gibson's car. He'd never driven it before. And wins the Western States. So in 1971, he won the two biggest outlaw races of the year in two different cars. Well, for 1972, uh, there was a gentleman out of Sealand's Grove, Pennsylvania, named Luke Boger, who owned a speed shop in Beavertown, Pennsylvania. And uh, he hired Jan to drive in 72. And Jan hit and He found his he found his happy place with that with that outfit with Bogers in Beavertown. He loved the area around – I think – he told me more than once that I think that just listen to him talk. I think the happiest times in his life was when he was in the central Pennsylvania area. He loved the, the mountain, the kids that lived there, the long haired guys that worked on his cars and uh, the mountains and the Susquehanna River. It's just beautiful over there, but he... He went to work for, and he had a mechanic uh, that he really hit it off with named Ralph Heinzelman. Ralph was also, Ralph was just inducted into the Hall of Fame, Sprint Car Hall of Fame, and so was John Singer. So these guys that Jan raced with, they were top of the line guys. But anyway, Ralphie Heinzelman built a car, and and uh, they won 44 races out of 99 in 1972, and he won Manzanita again. It, he was just... He really came into his own then, and you're talking about outlaw. I mean, you're getting a lot of publicity. He was getting a lot of publicity, and he made good money back in the day. I mean, they said – I think they said he made – in those days, I think they said he made $60,000 that year, which is for a sprint car driver was (laughs) was unfathomable. So, uh, yeah, that was – but that really put him on the map in 72, and he won Manzanita again. Uh, driving the Boger car, the Western States Championship. So, 71 and 72 really put Jan Opperman on the map.
0: Eventually, he found his way to IndyCar. How did that happen, Tim?
2: Well, in nineteen at the end of 1973, Brock Yates wrote an article in Car and Driver. Brock Yates was the dean of auto Amer- American Auto Racing journalist, and he wrote a he wrote a story about Jan and car and driver magazine. It was unheard of for an outlaw dirt track, sprint car driver to be written up in a sporty car magazine, car and driver. It was really interesting. You know, and Jan said that he was looking to try a different thing. Jan always wanted to run the speedway. He wanted to run Indy, you know, he could make more money, feed his family. So he, in, at the start of 1974, he, um, he drove for speedway motors down in Florida at the IMCA winter nationals at the Tampa fairgrounds. And he, I think he won three out of five races down there and he won that championship. And then he, the Boger team, instead of running all the races in Pennsylvania, they started running USAC sprints. And, uh, he won at Eldora, uh, great racetrack in Ohio. He won a USAC race. He, he got hit in the nose and the mouth and, he, uh, about knocked him out. He was bleeding really bad, and he hung on and won the race. And uh, the Wide World of Sports telecast the Tony Holman Classic from uh, Terre Haute Action Track back then. They used to show it on the Wide World of Sports. Well, they, uh, he ran second to Gary Buttenhausen and I'll always remember that I was there that day, and he, him and A.J. Floyd had a heck of a race running against the fence. It was pretty spectacular. But anyway, the month of May came up then right after, that was a mid-April of 74. And Jan goes to the Speedway as a, just walks in the garage area. He's leading the USAC Sprint uh, Point standings at the time. And he goes to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And I mean, he looked just like he always looked. I mean, he had the, he had his hat on and his hair hanging on his shoulders and his Indian moccasins and his bell-bottom jeans with the fringe on the bottom. and His bare tooth around his neck. And he just walked in Parnelli Jones's garage. And he walked up to Parnelli and introduced himself. And Parnelli is a pretty sharp cookie. He knows everybody in racing. And he knew who Jan was. He'd heard about him. And I'll never forget, he asked, Parnelli asked Jan, he says, how many races did you run last year? He goes, I don't mean heat races, Uh, consolation races, trophy dashes, how many main event feature races did you run? And Jan said, I ran 101 races last year. And Parnelli said, back in my heyday, I ran 60 races. And I thought that was way too many times to put my head on the chopping block. He goes, I, he says, I know who you are and what you've done. I got to talk to my partner, Bill Melletich, come back tomorrow. Jan had asked him for a ride. And he said, let me talk to my partner. Well, he came back the next day, and two haircuts later, Jan was sitting in one of Parnelli's cars, and uh, he qualified for the 500, and uh, started in the last row. He started 32nd in the middle of the 11th row, and in 85 laps, Jan drove all the way into the top 10. And he ran over something on the track, and then cut his tire, and uh, he got a flat, and he spun the car, and it put him out of the race. But for a guy that had very little pavement experience. Uh, he he might have run four or five pavement races in his life. He was a dirt track racer. To get in a rear-engine turbocharged Offenhauser handy car and run that thing over way over 200 mile an hour down the straightaway was, uh, I thought, quite an accomplishment.
0: Would you consider Jan a very aggressive driver, cautious driver? Kind of a loaded question, but what was your opinion, seeing it up close and personal?
2: He was, uh, Jan was smart. I mean, he, sure, he, he'd holler in there. I mean, he would holler in the corner deep. But he was he was very calculated driver. And the biggest thing, one of the biggest things about Jan, and another guy that I was fortunate to spend a lot of time with, Bubby Jones, those two guys really, really, really were into the science of racing, how to make that car do the work for you. I still have a sheet Jan gave me when I got my first sprint car ride. He wrote down cross weight, uh, tilt, uh, the toes on the cars, everything. I mean, those guys, he was smart. He lived it. Uh, he, he wasn't, I'm not going to say that he would get in a toolbox and start twisting wrenches, but he understood offset wheels and what kind of tires. Because dirt track racing is a completely different science than any kind of other kind of racing. He was really – he paid attention, and, uh, I mean, when he was at the racetrack, man, he walked on the balls of his feet. I mean, his eyes had pierced right through you. He knew what he wanted. He was pretty darn smart, and he was a real competitor.
0: (laughs) Over the years, I've noticed that you've developed friendship and through some of the past episodes with the drivers, and uh, I think at one time you said that uh, Jen even stayed at your house. Uh, What was that like?
2: Uh, I mean, I got to know him and, and, uh, well, he invited me, like I said, I mean, he didn't know me that when I met him at Williams Grove, he didn't really know me, but we got to be friends and, um, he's got, he had great kids. He had, he had I liked his kid, his wife, Mary Lewis, she's a, she's a sweetheart of a lady. They were just very kind people. And he told me one time, he says, if you ever get up, he got his place in Montana. He always wanted a place in the mountains. And uh made enough money racing, he put a down payment on a place in uh, Noxon, Montana, which is all the way up in the northwestern corner there, up near Sandpoint, Idaho, south of Canada. It's, it's far northwestern Montana, right near the Clark Fork River. And uh, he told me, he said... If you ever get up my way, come and see me. You can stay at the house in Montana. Man, I got made my way up to Seattle one winter. I was staying with a buddy named Louis Shevchik in Piaulip, Washington, and I called Jan. And he says, "Come on over." Louis and I went over there, and Louis went home after a couple of days. He had to work, but I was kind of wandering around, and uh, I stayed there for a couple of weeks. And uh, the next year, I he I went back and stayed for a couple months. So. Uh, yeah, I, I just I got along with him good, and and I was fortunate to get to get close to him and spend a lot of time with him, and he taught me a lot.
0: Did You bring your family into it at all? Did anybody in uh, in your family ever meet Jan or uh, get to know him a little bit?
2: <laughs> Ironically, uh, I didn't really have family approval for what I was doing. Uh, I mean, my mother wanted me to get a college education. I tried a couple times and dropped out because I was going to be a race car driver. And she thought I'd end up being a carny. Interesting story about that was that jam was driving at the speedway in 1976. And that's after I'd been up to his place in Montana and she'd heard about him. I mean, I talked about him a lot and I mean, all you got to do is read the newspaper and he was, name was in the newspaper. She worked with a lady at, uh, my mom was a nurse. She worked at St. Vincent's hospital in Indianapolis and one of the nurses a good friend of hers ran the pace car room at the Speedway during the month of May. One afternoon, he invited a couple of the nurses and my mother to go to the Speedway uh, for a practice stay. So my mom's at the Speedway, and uh, she's the an entire terrace there and stands behind the pits. And there's a yellow flag, and Jan's sitting in his car. And I wasn't at the Speedway. I was working for the Buttonhausens at the time. And uh, they had a shop on the west side of Indy. I wasn't at the track. And uh Jan's sitting in his Indy car, getting ready to, there's a yellow flag, yellow light, caution period, they're not running. And he's sitting in his car, getting ready to go back out. My mom says to the guard there uh, at the gate, says, go over there and tell that Jan Opperman that I'd like to talk to him. And he says, ma'am, you don't understand. This is the Indianapolis 500. He's getting He wants to get that car ready to qualify this weekend. She goes, you go tell him that Timmy Coffeen's mom wants to meet him. <laughs> my mom says, he yeah. the guy went over and told Jan, stuck his head down the cockpit and he says, Jan jumped out of the car, came straight over to my mother and says, how do you do? It's nice to meet you. You got a good son. I mean, that meant a lot to me is my mom wasn't really all that high on me wanting to be about racing. And another addition to that story, Was He called me that afternoon and said, I was at Bettenhausen's working, and he called the shop at Bettenhausen's and said a friend of ours, Jerry Miller, was going to have dinner that night, and he invited me to come over. So I show up at Jerry Miller's house, and I walk in the living room. Jan's sitting on the couch with a couple people, and they're talking, and he looks at me, and he goes, you'll never believe who I met today. And I said, I have no idea, Jan. You probably meet a thousand people a day. He goes, I met your mom today. And I says, no, you didn't. He says, she's a lovely lady. I went, oh, my <laughs> word. I could, could not believe it.
0: Uh, that's a great one, Timothy. <laughs> it's I, true. I can see uh, uh, the type of guy he was. He earned respect from other drivers, from fans, from workers, etc. Who are some of the drivers that Jan admired?
2: Well, Jan was really – Close and admired Bubby Jones greatly. Um, He really, really looked up to Bubby Jones. Uh, Didn't look up to him. He just considered him a peer. I remember pulling into the tracks with Jan riding in the truck, towing the race car. And and when you pull into a sprint car track, you got to go to a pit booth and buy your pit pass. And there's usually rigs lined up waiting to get into the pits. And he'd always say, you see that M.A. Brown rig? Let me know. And he, more often than not, there'd be Bub's and go, oh, no, I got to beat him tonight. But, yeah, he, Jan had a lot of respect. I mean, Bobby Allen was a friend of his from, from Cal, uh Pennsylvania, sorry. Yeah, Rick Ferkel was an outlaw racer from Ohio. They had some battles. He loved a couple kids from Texas. Uh, James McElreath was Jim McElreath's son. Bobby Marshall, uh, they were good friends of his. Um uh, I'm probably going to forget some guys, but Jan really, Jan respected other racers. There was a couple of guys that he had kind of feuds with. Kenny Weld was a great race car driver from Pennsylvania. A lot of people think that Jan and Kenny kind of made each other more famous because they had, they were supposedly feuding over their racing, but Jan had a lot of respect for him. And, uh, Gary Bettenhausen, Jan had a lot of respect for Gary Bettenhausen. They, they were good friends. Um. So, yeah, Jan was, I don't know, I i, uh, I learned a lot from him.
0: You know, as we look back at his career, what was the biggest accomplishment that Jan had in his racing career?
2: Well, I mean, all the races he won and everything. I mean, Knoxville, uh, Manzanita twice, uh, qualifying at Indy. Um, I think one of the biggest things he ever did was uh, in 1974, uh, Pennsylvania, as I stated earlier, is a hotbed of all kinds of different dirt track racing. They got heavies, the modifieds that used to race at the Reading Fairgrounds. The track's no longer there, but that was a anyway. The NASCAR made a deal with the local promoters in Pennsylvania, and they uh, they said that for the Pocono 500 one year, they would get rides for the two most popular drivers in Pennsylvania that the fans voted on. Well, the Sprint car fans voted for Jan Opperman, and the uh, Modified fans voted for Kenny Brightbill, who raced Modifieds. So Jan went to Pocono to race a stock car. This is like two months after he'd run at Indy. And like I said, he charged from the last row from 32nd starting place into the top 10 in 85 laps. And now he gets in a stock car at Pocono a couple months later. He'd never driven a stock car, little you know. He had a little bit of experience on pavement now, but he runs NASCAR, and uh, he finished eighth in the Pocono 500 in 1974 in the August race. So, um, I mean, but I think one of the greatest the greatest accomplishments he ever did that I witnessed was in 1976 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He qualified on the second day uh, for in an older. Uh, Gurney Eagle. It was a uh, Murgaards out of Cincinnati. It was an older car. It was a shoestring budget, so to speak, not a high dollar deal. And he qualified, but he got bumped early on Sunday morning and uh, he was out of the race because been back in those days, there might be 45 cars trying to qualify and only 33 made it. So he's out and without prospect of another ride. So I was with him that morning. Uh, He was, we were going to go race a sprint car at Finley, Ohio that night. And uh, he was driving for Speedway Motors. Well, the chief mechanic (coughs) for the Speedway Motors car was a gentleman named Terry Otero, originally out of Albuquerque. And Jan says, let's go to Finley. I can make a thousand bucks if we win there tonight. And Terry says, you're not going. I'm the chief mechanic. He called Bill Smith, Speedway Motors in Lincoln and said, Jan got bumped. Bill said, well... He's got a chance to get another ride, you know. Stay there in Indy with him. So that's what we did. We stayed there that day, and a guy named Dick Ruth came up to Jan and said he he uh, respected him, he his views, you know, his Christianity and his driving ability and everything. And he asked him if he wanted to take shake his car down. Well, this car had, had three different drivers in it. Gary Albrighton had crashed it a couple times. Uh, Steve Krasilov had driven it. And he got out of it and went to drive for somebody else because he couldn't make a go. And uh, Jerry Carl had been driving it, And he was a mile an hour too slow of making the race also. So, Jan gets in this thing. And uh, right away, guys started showing up. Uh, uh, Ted Swiontek was an old sprint car mechanic from Pennsylvania that was working on Bill Simpson's IndyCar who had just got bumped out of the field also. So, he didn't have anything to work on. And Jan calls him over. Knew him from Pennsylvania. And uh, they started making adjustments on this car. And its time's running out. And Jan's got no laps in this car. And there's a big line of cars forming to qualify. Jan went back onto the track. At 6 o'clock, he pulled away just as the gun went off. And when they just actually stuck a gun out the window of the old tower terrace there, and boom, at 6 o'clock, he pulled away as the gun went off. Had less than 10 laps in this car he got faster with every lap and bumped his way into the speed into the Indianapolis 500 and it was one of the in my lifetime it was one of the greatest driving performances I ever saw and that's he he was he get the job done believe me
0: well sadly of course racing is a dangerous occupation and Jan had an accident in 1976 what happened and was he able to make a comeback after that tim
2: well Unfortunately, uh, you know he had been on such a hot streak leading up to that in '76. He got on with Longhorn Racing. They hired him after the Speedway. He won sprint car races. He won the Tony Holman Classic that year, it was the biggest race of the year. He won that. Uh, that was with Speedway Motors. And then after the Indy 500, I just talked about that he qualified for Longhorn. Bobby Hillen out of Midland, Texas, hired him. Bobby owned Longhorn Racing. And he told Jan, if you come and drive my sprint cars for me, I'll buy you an Indy car. And he did. And he started running Indy cars for Bobby Hillen with looking to the future as a, you know, racing all the time on the championship trail. But uh, he, he run, I don't know, he won four USAC midget races. He won uh, sprint car races. He had a run there in in less than a week. I mean, he won at Raceway Park in a midget on a 5 Ace mile paved track on a Wednesday night. In the same car, he goes to a quarter-mile dirt track at the Springfield, uh, Illinois. It was used to a quarter-mile track. He wins in a midget there. He goes to the uh, Springfield, to the State Fair, Illinois State Fair in Springfield on the mile dirt track the next day. He comes from 16th place to take the lead in 70 laps and he runs out of fuel 10 laps to go in the race but the next day he went to dayton ohio and it's the fastest pavement track i was ever at in my life it's faster than winchester it was bigger and him and poncho carter had a heck of a deal that duel that day and jan won that race and we went out to uh ontario to run the indy car and he ran sixth in, a, in an indy car and he had a couple he had a tire come off after a pit stop. And he had to drive all the way around the track on three wheels and come back in. And the car got damaged and uh, hit some debris. During uh, Bukovic crashed in front of him, but he brought that car home in sixth place. And um, he was just he, he was on a roll. And then the next day we went to Ascot. I was with him. We went to Ascot to run a Labor Labor Day uh, fifty lapper, and he won that race. Then we go back to Indy the following Saturday for the Hoosier 100, um, biggest-paying dirt race of the year, the champ dirt race. He was running second, pressuring Johnny Parsons for the lead, and, and J.P. spun, and Chan hit him and turned over. And he was laying on the track sideways uh, with his roll cage uh, facing oncoming traffic, and a car came down into the corner and, and hit him, right? I mean, hit him basically in the helmet. And uh, he was unconscious for a week, and he was never the same after that. I mean, he had a serious, serious head injury, and it it changed him immensely.
0: So sad to hear that. Well, Tim, your, your amazing memory has really come to the front again today, and, and thank you for all those memories, both good and bad. A final question for you, and I know you were close to Jan, but – Any final thoughts on his life and career, what he meant to you?
2: Oh, boy. I mean, Jan Opperman to me, like I said earlier, I think about him every damn day. Um, He really, when I wanted to get into racing, and when a guy like that takes an interest in you, I mean, it just gave me confidence. I'm sure other people noticed that I was with him, but he was such a good friend like I said, he was a lover. He was a Christian guy. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed to let that out there. He wanted people to know. And I don't know. He just, he really, really helped me. I mean, he, he helped me, he helped me be friends with my mom again. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't really too happy about me hanging around racist. She wanted me to, you know, do something else with my life, but, uh, being with him and, uh, I don't know. He, he just, I, I, I get tongue tied talking about him. I think about him every day. Um, he's one of the greatest race car drivers that ever drew a breath. I remember John Sawyer, uh, a journalist, writer. He's a great writer, but he wrote about Jan one time. He said, You know, Jan had was a charismatic figure and everything like that. He said, but without a heavy right foot, he would have been just another guy trying to get through the first turn. Jan was a. Uh, he was a great race car driver. He's a good friend. And I made a lot of friends through him that I still see. And, uh, you know, he introduced me to Bubby Jones after all the years I hung around Bub and didn't really know him. He, I got to be friends with Bub because of Jan. He just did so many things for me in my life. And, um, and I just wanted to talk about him because I know I, I don't want, I don't want people to forget him. He's, uh, he was a magnificent racer and a great friend. And, um, that's what, that's what I say about him. I miss him.
0: Absolutely. And, and thank you again for your uh, terrific memories of IndyCar and racing history again here on the Sports History Network. Always enjoy talking to you, Tim. Thank you for your time, your memories, and your information, and the emotion that you bring to the show. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Joe. It's, uh, it really meant a lot tonight to be able to do this and talk about him. Thanks.
1: We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month.